within a few years of Nebuchadnezzar's death, a massive army approaches Babylon, led by Cyrus, king of Persia. Let them know we've arrived. Babylonians know they don't stand a chance. They let Cyrus in without a fight. So who was this Cyrus? And did he really just walk in to the city of Babylon? Yes, he did. At least according to the writing on on this uh, artifact discovered in the late 1800s in Iran dating back to the time of Cyrus. This object is uh, known as the Cyrus Cylinder because of its shape. And that's writing all the way around it, and it records the, uh, the antics of King Cyrus. And it tells us about the conquest of Babylon with these words. Now remember, Cyrus was a Persian, and he's going to talk about Marduk, who is the chief god of the Babylonians, Okay? So here's what it says. Marduk, the great lord protector of his people, beheld with pleasure Cyrus's good deeds in his upright mind and ordered him to march against his city, Babylon. He made him set out on the road to Babylon, going at his side like a real friend. His widespread troops, their number like that of the water of a river could not be established, strolled along their weapons packed away. Without any battle... He made him enter his town, Babylon, sparing Babylon any destruction. This was the same Cyrus that we heard about in the Old Testament lesson today, where we we read that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make this proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. This Cyrus is also the one that that Isaiah named a hundred years before he was even born. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose hand I take hold of. Well, how about that? A pagan king called by God to do the work of God. And Cyrus was a pagan. Don't be fooled by the way that he uses the name of of the Lord in his proclamation to the Lord's people. A little bit later on that same Cyrus cylinder, we're told that he did that for all the captive peoples. 
who had been taken in exile to Babylon. Apparently it was a a fill-in-the-blank kind of general proclamation that, that he wrote and that he would give to the leaders of the various groups that had been taken prisoner. And they would put in the appropriate name of either the city or the god for their own people. Well, Cyrus's rise to power and his policy toward captive peoples marked a major turning point in the history of the people of Israel. It was the start of their return home and the rebuilding of the temple. But the exile itself was also a turning point. That's what I want to focus on today. The destruction of Jerusalem and especially its temple, as well as their deportation to Babylon, created a huge crisis for the people of God. And now we're looking at our, our sermon outline on page three. Created a huge crisis for them, resulting in a tremendous challenge to their faith, which prompted many questions, three of which we're going to address this morning. The first question, is God powerful? Well, to be more specific, their question really was, is our God, Yahweh, is he more powerful than Marduk? Remember Marduk, we met him with the Cyrus Cylinder. He was the chief god of the Babylonians. He was known as the snake dragon. Here's an image of him from ancient Babylon. And here's another image from the same time period. Well, in the ancient world, even among the people of of Israel, it was generally accepted that there were many gods. So the people of Israel thought, at least many of them did, that when, when the prophet said there's only one God, that, well, they must have meant there's only one God for Israel. Because every nation had its own God or gods. And those gods were specifically tied to the people and the land of their nation. And in that land is where they were most powerful. So remember what happened then. The followers of Marduk came from a, from a faraway place and invaded Yahweh's territory and they beat him and took captive his people. For those people, that created all kinds of confusion and doubts in their minds. Now add to that the splendor of Babylon. You know, in our 21st century, there isn't too much that dazzles or surprises us anymore, is there? We, we see images of all kinds of things from, from all around the world pretty much every day. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that our world is the world. But that was not the case for the people living in 6th century B.C., their world was limited to what they could see around them or, or maybe the, the distance in which they could travel in a day or two. Well, sometimes they would hear stories about distant places, 
but they never saw them. And they had no way of knowing if those stories were true. Well, their eyes must have fairly jumped out of their heads when they arrived in Babylon and compared it to their homeland. They had thought their temple was amazing until they saw the temple of Marduk. That's what's pictured here. They had thought Jerusalem was spectacular until they saw Babylon. They had thought the Jordan was a mighty river until they saw the Euphrates. The city of Babylon was right on the Euphrates River. And don't forget that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon. Now put it all together and you have a crisis of faith for God's people who asked, is God powerful? Some of them were also asking another question. And that was, is God fair? Well, it wasn't our fault. That was pretty much the the constant refrain of many of the exiles. We were no worse than those who came before us and God didn't punish them. How were we supposed to know that he really was serious with his warnings to us? Is that fair? Is God fair? Others saw it differently. Yes, it is fair that we are being punished. They said, we brought this on ourselves. And so that prompted another question for them. And that is, is God gone? Has he abandoned his people just as he said he would, just as the prophets warned us about over and over again when they called us to repent, to return to God, to keep our part of the covenant? And that thought must have been the most devastating of all. Because if it were true, if God was gone, Then so was their hope. Then came the turning point. It was into this situation that Jeremiah the prophet spoke. Do you remember him? He's the one who had been so hard on the people of Judah before the fall of Jerusalem. He had been warning them repeatedly of impending doom. He had even counseled King Zedekiah. He was the last king in Judah. Jeremiah had counseled King Zedekiah to surrender to the Babylonians when they appeared outside the city of Jerusalem. But now he spoke a new word. A word of comfort and encouragement. A word of hope. Things are going to turn around, he said. Well, that's a paraphrase. What he actually wrote to them was this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise 
to bring you back to this place. And then he wrote these familiar words. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The turning point. From defeat to rescue. From captivity to freedom. From despair to hope. God was not gone. He had not abandoned his people. When the exiles returned to Judah and began the difficult task of rebuilding the temple, they had answers to their questions about God. The crisis was over. But there were still consequences to the events of the past 70 years, and that's the second part in our sermon outline. And and don't think that the word consequence has only negative implications. That's kind of the way that we use it, I suppose. But, but really, it's a neutral word. It simply means results or effect. So the consequence or result of the exile was that the faith of the people which had been challenged was now changed in a very real way. These changes would, would shape the, the teachings and conduct of Israel for centuries, and, and they brought about the spiritual climate into which Jesus was born, in which he lived and, and ministered. This was the beginning of the religion known as Judaism, which had its roots in the Old Testament, but which was shaped in large part by the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. So let's work our way through some of the changes that are listed in your sermon outline. To the question, is God gone? The people had this answer, God is present in the lives of his people. Before the exile, they had thought of God as being present in a building in the temple. That was where he lived, shrouded in in majesty and mystery. But once the temple was gone, they began to realize the truthfulness of what Solomon had said at its dedication. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. And so Paul could say that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, when the people came to believe that God was present not in a building, but in his people, what went along with that was the realization that he ruled in the hearts of his people, that his kingdom was not of this world, didn't have political Boundaries. It wasn't geographical regions. It was lives devoted to him. Jesus spoke of this quite regularly in his parables, which oftentimes begin with the words, the kingdom of God, meaning the rule of God in the hearts of people. Well, if God ruled in their hearts, that meant that they worshipped him 
with their lives. One of the topics that the Old Testament prophets spoke about again and again was the sharp distinction between how the people worshipped on the Sabbath and how they acted the rest of the week. The prophets were extremely critical of those who were so careful to follow the letter of the law with the worship practices that God had given them, but who somehow seemed to think that that was the only thing about which he had given instructions, that how they lived their lives was completely up to them to figure out. That attitude also changed during the exile. When it was no longer possible to worship God in the temple, they figured out that what he wanted all along was for them to worship him with their lives. The temple had not only been the place where God lived, it had also been the place where sacrifices were offered, where the festivals were held, where rituals were conducted. No longer. Now it was in the lives of his people where the true worship of God was. Now you're going to recognize that that many, maybe most of these things, really are stated in the Old Testament. But they came to full flower as a result of the exile. The same is is true with the next point in your outline, and that is that, that God is revealed in Scripture. The exile was the period during which the written word begins to be very important. The historical details of the first five books of the Bible, the, the sayings and the writings of the prophets, were written down and copied over and over again during this time. This solidified the understanding that the scriptures are where God is to be found, where his will and his actions are revealed. Well, finally for our consideration today, there was no longer any question of how God ranked among the other gods. Now they realized what the Lord had always said about himself. And that was not that, that there was only one God in Israel, but that there was only one God. Any other so-called gods were just idols, figments of people's imagination. No, there's one God, and he is the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and of all their descendants. And not only their descendants, but of all who worship him. And acknowledge him to be the true God. We can thank the exile for driving that point home. And this teaching that there is only one God was at the heart of the Jewish council's inquisition and accusation of Jesus. That he claimed to be the son of God, which to their way of thinking was impossible and was therefore blasphemy. Do you see how all of this works together? How this is all part of the plan. How God used 
history and shaped history for his purposes, according to his plan. From the very beginning and throughout history, his plan has always been to prosper us, never to harm us, never to harm us, but always to give us hope and a future, a bright future with him and all believers in heaven. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.